You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 16. That would be someone who is overfitting. The last person they spoke to, that's who they believe. The underfitter doesn't draw conclusions. So someone who underfits might be described as you know, stubborn. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. All right, welcome once again to the Local Maximum. How y'all doing? I'm your host, Max Sklar. Today we're going to be talking about underfitting and overfitting from the perspective of machine learning. These are important concepts, but I think they also apply to everyday life. As the name suggests, you want to kind of strike a happy medium between underfitting and overfitting, but it's not always so easy. So we're going to introduce these concepts. We're going to talk about uh, you know, how we use this in the tech world. We're going to talk about how I use it to analyze the world. And then we are going to talk about different perspectives on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency with regard to this Fred Wilson versus uh, Warren Buffett. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about the value of the Turing test. So very interesting uh, show today. Before I go on, I just want to mention that if you're one of the new people listening to the program, we're always hiring at Foursquare, machine learning engineers, general software engineers, all sorts of jobs. So if you're interested in that, localmaxradio at gmail.com. Let me know, foursquare.com slash jobs. Uh, and for our uh, discussion today, we're going to bring in Aaron. All right, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on again. Pleasure as always. And uh, first, I want to congratulate you on your new baby. This is baby number two for you. Is that right? That that is that is correct. Uh, I at least as far as I can remember, uh, my my short term memory is is suffering. At <laughs> a like little, a week and a half in here. A little bit tired today. A little bit, yeah. We're gonna keep you up. We're gonna keep you <laughs> caffeinated, and then we're gonna have an excellent podcast. And then as soon as we're done, uh, then you can collapse. It'll be like the end of of the marathon or something like that. That sounds spectacular. All right. That's great. Congratulations are also in order uh, in, in the other direction because this is, this is your 16th episode, right? That's so correct. Ha- happy sweet 16. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if that's a thing in the podcast world. But- I don't know, but it's, it's very nice. I, I like the idea of counting order of two uh, magnitude, you know, powers of two, sorry, uh, in terms of which podcasts are meaningful. So the next one to look forward to, I guess, would be 32. So, so you're going to start numbering them in binary? Uh, no, I don't think we could be that ridiculous, but you know, <laughs> I don't think people would get that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I'll, I'll, still, I'll still celebrate the base 10 milestones as well, but base two, my, more celebrations, the better, right? Sounds good to me. All right. How's your long weekend going? Since I went on to uh, my parental leave break uh, about a week and a half ago, the fact that there's a holiday tomorrow, uh, it hasn't really registered oh, in the same way right. it normally would. Oh, you have time off. Oh, my God. I'm going to have you on for more podcast shows now. I yeah, well, I, I'll, I'll tell you, it doesn't feel that way because, well, I, I haven't been to work for almost two weeks. Uh, I have accomplished next to nothing other than changing diapers and holding uh, a my toddler as well. So yeah. I've been keeping very busy. To- no, nothing on that to-do list has, has been does accomplished. Does your toddler listen to the show? Uh, she does not. <laughs> um, she's she's much more interested in Daniel Tiger. So, All right. Get them started early. Um, 
Yeah, no, I'm glad to have a long weekend. That was this is the first time. I'm not sure. I usually put my shows out Monday night and into Tuesday morning, and I what like this is the first Monday holiday, so I wasn't sure whether to say you know, uh, hey, now it'll go out Tuesday night, Wednesday morning because it's a holiday. Like theoretically, I could have gotten away with that, but I don't. I decided to do it anyway just because we have time. Well, as as much as I may uh, rag on government workers, I think it's it's a. F- a fair benchmark that if the mail is showing up a day late, then everything else can be a day late. That works for me. Works for me. So uh, in other podcast related news, before we get into our our main learning session today, uh, we got a lot of new listeners. I think we got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of new listeners over the last few weeks. Um, A lot of that is uh, driven by a mention on the Tom Wood show, which I'm very happy with. That show is it's a libertarian podcast. I think it's the most popular one out there. And so um, I'm very happy with it. And also, like, we got a lot of comments coming in from, you know, the right people. So I'm very happy about that. Like, you know, people who are writing, you know, smart things and not trolls. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very happy with the new audience members. So welcome, everybody who's coming from that show. And I think what I've learned from that is to get myself out on other podcasts because I've been running around in meetups and in-person things in New York City, which is great. Uh, but I think I could reach more people by getting on podcasts. So that's why I'm going on more uh, you know, tech podcasts. Uh, I'll be on Mark Weiss's Using Reflection in a few weeks and hopefully a few others. So um, stay tuned for that. And what's what's the best way to keep track of, of where you're going to be showing up next? Is that all going to be in in, in show notes or, or watch you on the Twitter? I Twitters think it's just to listen to this where? podcast. Like I'll just make sure to mention it on the podcast um, whenever I have a public talk or anything like that. Most of my talks aren't public. Like this week, for example, I went to Queens College to talk to uh, some you know, graduating seniors who just finished, I don't know if they're all their master's and bachelor's students who just finished their final and finished their semester. And so I was brought in as a speaker. I did something very similar to what I did at Yale. And um, it was a really good time. It was really great to be out in Queens College and, and, and meet those people. I, you know, I get them on my email list. I tell them to email me whenever I can, because, you know, those emails from students are, Uh, you know, the best emails I can get. I get spam all day, but, you know, if somebody saw my talk and, you know, you're a student looking to get into technology and you want to talk more, that's, that's a happy email. Yeah. It's, it's, it's someone you can actually help in a, in a satisfying way. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the emails I get do not result in, in a a satisfying outcome for me, regardless of whether I'm helping somebody. Yeah. And the reason why I go to these, um, universities a lot is because I, you know, in a few years, uh, those people might be in a position to help me, whether, you know, they're people I can, who, uh, you know, who have a few years of experience as a software engineer, they're people I can recruit, they're people who, you know, I can talk to them about what their companies are doing or, you know, uh, all sorts of things like that, or to just be ambassadors for the podcast. I'd be happy enough to that for that. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you never know who's going to be a future uh, employee, colleague, or employer. Right, right. Uh, the the fact that somebody's younger than you has has very little bearing on that. That in the is modern true. World. That is true. All right. Um, so let's get into our concept of the day because one of the things that re- I reminded me when I was giving that talk and that I kind of wanted to do uh, from this pod and on this podcast from the beginning is talk about machine learning p- concepts that most people, you know 
aren't exposed to day to day because you know I study machine learning and statistical inference, all that stuff, and uh, figure out how those concepts can you know be used in your day to day life to understanding the world. You know, so Bayesian, the Bayes rule was one of them. Uh, and today I want to talk about the concept of underfitting and overfitting. I think that's also uh, real useful terminology. So I'm just going to get started explaining it. You tell me if my explanation is satisfactory or if, uh, if you want to know more, and then I have some examples. But essentially, um, underfitting and overfitting has to do with the idea of learning. So when you have a machine learn from examples, uh, a machine that's overfitting will draw too many conclusions from a single example. And so um, essentially, I think one, one politician I've heard is being described as, you know, taking the shape as a pillow that is taking the shape of the last person who sat on him. Um, that would be someone who is overfitting. Um, in other words, the last person they spoke to, that's who they believe. The underfitter is the opposite. The underfitter doesn't really believe a whole lot that it's told, and it doesn't draw conclusions from a lot of data. So someone who underfits might be described as uh, you know, stubborn. Uh, they won't, uh, it's kind of like an old dog that won't uh, learn new tricks. And so um, that's underfitting. And we use this in our machine learning algorithms to figure out how good something is at learning an objective function. So when you're learning an objective function, you want to say you have a, a score that tells you whether you're learning well or you're learning not so well. And typically, we can tell if you're underfitting or if you're overfitting. Um, and so we use the, that terminology, but I think it applies to people as well as algorithms. Does that make sense? It, it, it does. And interestingly enough, uh, when when you told me this is going to be the topic, uh, I, I couldn't draw a parallel to this, but now that now that you've explained it in a little more detail, this actually fits very closely to something I did at my first job out of college, which maybe, maybe we can get into a little yeah. more, more detail on that later. Okay. But what I'm most interested right now is how do you go about making that uh, determination of of your performance in, in terms of over or underfitting? Is it is it simply a matter of you you hold back additional uh, training data and and you run your 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 algorithm or yeah. your 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 AI against that that you know hidden training data and see if you get similar yeah, results it, or, or you're exactly you're... right on that. Um, uh, okay. it, it could get a little more complicated on that, but uh, in the usual case in machine learning, we have a training set and a test set, and so the data is divided into these two groups, and the algorithm is only allowed to see the training set. It's not allowed to see the test set. And so you run it on the training set. It has a certain score on the training set. And then you have it do make predictions on the test set, you know, a new environment. And you see if it's doing well. If it's not doing well, then it merely, you know, uh, memorized the training set, in which case it just is severely overfitting. Um, and so when you see, hey, it's got a really good score on training, a really bad score on test, that is a sign of overfitting. Um, a sign of underfitting, uh, well, it usually has the same score on training and test, um, but you know, usually there are some knobs that you could fiddle around with that says if you 
make this parameter higher, then it trains it has a faster training rate, or lower, it has a lower training rate. And then so you try to keep on making it higher until the test set is no longer score is no longer going down. But that has its own problems because if you run it against the same test set over and over again, now your test set is helping you learn the hyperparameters. So that gets a little weird. But in general, um, in general, yeah, it's this it's it's to make sure it generalizes to data that the machine hasn't seen. You know, has it learned something about the world that it hasn't been told yet? That's the that's the main question. So so that begs the question, um, when you're separating out your test data and your training data, how, how do you presumably you have one giant pool of, of data yeah. available to you and you're splitting it in, in two, maybe not uh, a 50-50 yeah. split, but you're splitting into those two groups. How, how do you determine what goes in which set and how do you guarantee that you're getting a, a quote unquote representative sample in both your training and your, well, your testing well, it data be set? Random. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. if, it's, if it's not random, then you are, well, first of all, you're learning on data that's not like, you know, distributed in the same way as the real data set. So that could make your learning algorithm go off. And then your test set is also off. So yeah, it's, yeah, it should be random. Um, but, you know, th that's in the typical case. I don't want to, you know, say every problem is like this. You, you always learn there's a problem that's not like the ones that you see. The example that I give below over people overfitting and underfitting is that children tend to overfit and adults tend to underfit. So a good idea would be, and maybe you can correct me because, you know, you have young children now, so you understand, but like you know, a, a, a child might think, oh, just because person A is taller than person B, then person A must therefore be older than person B. Uh, but that's not necessarily true. Um, or, you know, they'll... Yeah, exactly. Like they'll see, um, I remember my, my cousin's daughter, you know, looked at uh, a drain in Connecticut and said, you know, where's the train? Because, you know, in New York, all the, all the, all the holes in the ground, you could see a train underneath. So that's just my example of how children tend to <laughs> overfit. And so, and then you can see adults, if you just become, you know, old and grumpy, <laughs> you don't really want to take new paradigms into account, which is something that we have to fight against, which is part of this, part of the idea of this podcast is we're fighting against our tendency to underfit. So my, my older child, uh, I, I have uh, an example in each direction on that. Okay. Um, what, one would be that recently, presumably because her younger sibling, uh, she, she has a, a little brother now. Right. Uh, and so she's become very interested in who's a girl and who's a boy. Right. And so, so she was, she, she keeps asking, asking me, daddy, are you a boy? And, <laughs> and I, 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 I had to double check before I, I, I answered the, this way, but I said, yes, I am. And in almost all cases, daddies will be boys. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh -oh. but she didn't take that as, as absolute. Uh, and she, she continued to, to double check that. So she has asked me uh, several dozen times in the last, week or two uh, to, to confirm that. So she's, she's not, uh, not relying on, on previous answers as, as a hundred percent accurate. Ah, um, and, and I guess the, the flip side of that, uh, and I've completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> what? I, had, I had something going the other way and, and it, maybe it'll never there come was back. Something with underfitting. Or oh, oh, I, I got it. Okay. So, uh, 
one of her her repeat viewing movies is the uh, the the classic Moana. Okay. Um, with, Moana. In, in in which there there is a, a female lead, um, and in the beginning you meet her father and her mother, and then the whole family on on their island, uh, and then there is another uh, a yeah. character, a male lead, who comes into play, um, who uh, is not her father, uh, but my daughter has has taken to referring to him as Moana's other daddy uh, because he he is he he huh. is the adult. Uh, who is accompanying her on the majority of her journey through the film, and so that's that's her second daddy. Um, which where's wait, where's the first there, one? There you is, said yeah. There her, wasn't. Oh, there's, there's, there's her father part. on the island okay. before she she goes goes out to sea, uh, and 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 so she knows that 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 is Moana's daddy, but but there's also other daddy. <laughs> right. So that's interesting. How it's always in the movie, it's always the the guy accompanying her is is the father yeah so that's the yeah, yeah. I, I i guess she's overfit and and uh a a an adult uh presented with or, or at least an adult of of my generation presented with that same information uh would not jump to that conclusion however it is entirely possible that somebody uh in in these modern days could have two daddies so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we we tend to underfit. Like we like if we see people walking down the street, I don't want to make any assumptions because you, you got to walk on eggshells sometimes. And um, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to um, you know presume what relationship is what um, for fear of uh, for fear of being wrong. Well, yeah. And, so so, so uh, this, this gets someone. to something a little bit broader even than that. Uh, and and I can't take credit for the phrasing of this, but. Um, as as a classic, uh, perhaps potential for overfitting, uh, it's been said that that stereotypes are an excellent first order approximation, uh, and 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 those are the classic uh, overfits because that while they are based on some data, yeah. uh, if you apply them universally, you will draw some incorrect conclusions at least eventually, if not immediately. Yeah, great. And speaking of in- incorrect conclusions. Um, I have an example to show why uh, overfitting um, and underfitting could be a problem. So let's say that you, Aaron, are applying for a loan. Um, And this is an algorithm that can be applied. So one algorithm uh, that's used in machine learning is called K nearest neighbors. That means I'm going to come up with some distance function that tells me how similar two people are. And K nearest neighbor looks at the people who are similar to you. And let's say I do the classic, the most overfitting algorithm that I possibly can, which is one nearest neighbor. So what one nearest neighbor means is that I look at the guy that's closest to you, Aaron, guy or girl, I don't know, uh, but it's the person who is most similar to you in my database. And you go to apply for a loan and it looks up this person and it sees that this person uh, defaulted on their loan. And so therefore it concludes that there is a 100% chance that Aaron will also default on his loan because Aaron is exactly the same as his buddy in, in, in this model. And, um, you know, therefore you will lose out on the loan, which, um, this might sound crazy, but these very, you know, small nearest neighbor models are actually quite common. Now, if you increase K, if you increase the number of people who are similar to you, then you're going to get a better result. So if I say, hey, the, the 10 people that are close to you, you know, um, 
uh, only one of them defaulted. So maybe you have a 10% chance of defaulting. And eventually you could increase K so much that it's just the my entire database. Well, you know, 7% of my whole database uh, defaulted. So I'll just assume everybody is at 7%. And so that's a problem for the business owner, but the underfitting doesn't you know, it, the, the results don't vary wildly, so at least it seems less unfair, I guess. Um, so that's sort of just an example of a way to think about it and what an overfitter versus an underfitter might do. And, and I guess the the key question there is, how are you determining who my nearest neighbor is? What what criteria? Because you, you could be doing that with something that's that big... actually has bearing on my ability to make mortgage payments, or you could be doing it based on something that that is perhaps correlated or not even correlated at all. It's just, it's a piece of data you have and it helps you determine who's similar to me, but, but not, but it could in fact be right. negatively correlated with the. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a that's an issue in, in KNN and machine learning is that you have to come up with a, um, you have to come up with a distance function and, you know, sometimes the, you know, uh, if you really want to, you should probably learn the distance function as well and have that vary and try to figure out how to how to make that work. I think with the loan example, you would almost certainly have to come up with lots of criteria and you would have to learn what that distance function is. KNN might not be the best uh, model for, for applying a loan, for, for trying to figure out the probability. But, but presumably... Uh... It's, it's benefit comes in the speed with which it can draw a conclusion. It can draw conclusions very fast, but one problem is that it has to store your entire database of training points in order to do K nearest neighbor. So that could be a problem. Like if your database is terabytes and terabytes and you have to you have to, and you also have to kind of index it so you can find the nearest neighbors fast enough. So it's not always that simple. If it's a smaller database, like you know, of uh, fifty thousand points, a hundred thousand points, then then it might work pretty well. Fair enough. So I think, I mean, there's also kind of a political, well, not necessarily political, more like um, uh, because you know, liberal versus conservative is not just political. It's also you can talk about you know an investing strategy or you know risk versus, you know, risk taker versus non-risk taker uh, strategy. But generally, you would say liberal is more over, more over, per, more prone to overfitting, conservative is more uh, prone to underfitting. Um, and there is some something to be said, like, it's, it's interesting how, in, in one sense, it's two sides of the same coin. But as we see with the loan example, underfitting and overfitting have a very different set of problems associated with it. Like, so um, generally underfitting can be the safer option. Uh, like I said, if I just assume your probability of defaulting on the loan is just the percentage of people who defaulted on the loan that I've ever seen. Um, but uh, you're, usually, you're usually leaving a lot of money on the table and overfitting is prone to doing something that's wildly unfair, um, but also trying to come up with, you know, innovative models is sometimes where the, you know, where the innovation lies. Yeah. And in, in, in the example I was talking about um, with, that I'd worked on previously, uh, 
we we could we could spin those knobs any way that the customer wanted us to to get you know perfect results on the test data. But uh, when when applied to real world data, the concern was that if if we overfit, then any false negatives we have result in people dying, and any false positives we have result in millions of dollars of equipment being expended. Uh, so, yeah. so it's, you, you've, you've got to walk that fine line and, and, uh, at some point that comes down to the equation of, well, how many millions of dollars of equipment is equivalent to how many millions of lives. And, and that's, that's not something that, that I was involved in. Uh, I, I leave that to the actuaries and the policymakers, but, but in order to implement their, their assessment of, of where that breakdown is, you need to be able to, to tune your model appropriately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's move on and let's, we could use the underfitting, overfitting paradigm uh, as we, or the terminology as uh, as we go on to other stories. Last week we talked about Yanni Laurel. It was funny because I uh, I walked in uh, Devil's Den today. I was in Weston yesterday and I walked in Devil's Den uh-huh. and there was a Laurel Trail and I posted <laughs> on Foursquare that I'm hiking the Yanni Trail. Um, but uh, yeah, tell me, you had something to add on that. Yeah, so so I'll I'll just preface this with uh, I'm sure everybody has their story about when the first time they heard it. Uh, I I was yeah. presented it unprimed by my wife, uh, other than her telling me this is you know the next what color is the dress thing. Um, oh yeah, and and I heard yammy, uh, so I I would spell it Y A M M. Yeah, it means you have young uh, ears. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know that I should be listening for Yanni or Laurel. Uh, she, of course, heard Laurel because we can never agree on anything. Um, but what I was more interested in is is kind of some follow-up questions, is how, how well do we really understand the phenomenon? And it sounds like people are attributing it to to frequencies um, and, yeah. and maybe maybe some things canceling each other out. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm really curious what what machine learning could could extract from this, if there's, there's some way you could – tune up a tool to, to try and ex- search audio clips for p- potentially, you know, quote unquote, hidden uh, audio in that message. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing machine learning can do, I don't know if it helps with the problem that you were talking about, but one thing that off the top of my head is there could be a site where people listen to Yanni and Laurel and they vote on which one they hear. Um, or they tell us what their Yanni Laurel switchover point is, but as we learned, that changes from day to day. So we collect data on who hears what, and then you could run a simple ML model, like a logistic regression, and you could, for any new person coming in, maybe you can, like you, you get what their age is, what their gender is, how tall they are, I don't know, whatever whatever we think might, um, might correlate, uh, whether they live in a city or, or, or the countryside, you know, that could you know, how much, how much, how many times, how much headphones they listen to, you know, do they listen to loud music? Um, and we could see if any of those variables correlate with hearing Yanni or Laurel. And then for any new person come in, we can predict based on their demographics and their information on whether they were, would hear Yanni or Laurel. So that would be interesting, but I don't know if that would be able to allow you to pick out new words that have those to double frequency. Type right, because you, you, you have a, a training versus test, testing issue there is that the person's response is most valuable the first time they hear it. And once they know, A, you know, that, that, that there's a crossover point and you should be hearing one of these two words, then 
they they can kind of get inside their own uh, perception loop and start influencing it. And like you said, it, it varies day to day which one you're hearing. Yeah, I mean, it does for um, me. So so, and then at the end of the day, okay, so you have the ability to predict this. What good does that do us? I'm I'm sure there's something, but but there's nothing at the surface value. It would be interesting. Um, I mean, like, except yeah. for my follow up question here is if if you can have uh, sound recordings that uh, one group of people hears one thing and another hears an, uh, a different thing, uh, could you use this to intentionally uh, hide messages in? Uh, uh, I, I was going to say in plain sight, but but perhaps plain sound. Uh, I don't know if that's a, yeah, a phrase you could use. <laughs> um, and and. If this can be fine-tuned, um, much much like Facebook ads can be targeted at extremely small groups of people, could you design an auditory message such that only a very specific subset of people would be able to hear the, the quote-unquote hidden message? And does this have um, – it's? It, I wouldn't call it cryptography applications, but, but some sort of uh, uh, ability to pass messages undetected and, and under the radar, um, which, which would be very interesting. Um, and – and to be honest, there's probably a, a, a group in the intelligence community that's been working on this for 50 years. How do years, we know but... that it hasn't already happened? Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, the only problem is you wouldn't be able to, like, you can target people with certain, you know, certain hearing types, but that's not necessarily like a, a super targeted message that you would the the it's not like in the the bio world where where there's there's been holy grail is yeah. the wrong term um this 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 terrifying specter of uh custom genetically engineered viruses that are you know essentially assassination yeah. tools keyed What's to a single movie? person's like, like, dna Zoolander when there was like a secret message in the in the music uh, I, I did not see Zoolander no, too. Oh, oh, was that in the original one yeah. with the that? So that's that's getting more towards Manchurian okay. Candidate, which which I guess is very much along these lines. Um, I, there, in that case, it's there's there's a trigger word that everybody hears it, but it only has yeah. meaning for so one. So it's person. like they told me to kill Laurel. Oh. Yeah, and he's dead. Is that what happened? <laughs> I guess the other piece of that. What what might be much more viable as opposed to to trying to you know have in a in a regular message that that only certain people can hear you could very easily put something into an audio file that requires some sort of simple filtering to extract the hidden message uh, but when you listen to the the you know unfiltered uh, the the hidden content is completely uh, I obscure. see so you put different um, messages on different frequencies so, which is is that not how radio works or am I I'm misunderstanding it, but like different. You know, I, I, yeah. I've worked with antennas, but I, I've never gotten into the, the yeah. amateur radio stuff. And so my actual grasp of that is not as strong, right, nearly right. as but strong. The, as but if be. it's done on the auditory channel as well, um, that's an interesting idea. All right. So now we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk about and underfitting and overfitting has a part to play here. Um, we're going to talk about the Warren, Warren Buffett statements on Bitcoin the other day, how he called it rat poison squared, I believe. And uh, yes. Fred Wilson, who is an investor here in New York, a venture capitalist in Union Square Ventures, 
sort of went against that at a recent conference called Consensus 2018 that happened here in New York. It was a big cryptocurrency conference that a lot of people went to. But let me read part of this article from, uh, now this article was everywhere, but the one I printed out is from Cryptona, which is a website from Latvia, which means I have no idea how reliable this website is. But I know that's the problem with big cryptocurrencies. You, you have all these uh, sources, I have no idea. But anyway, this I know really happened because this is in New York and this is printed other places like Bloomberg. So barely a week after someone countered Warren Buffett's recent offensive remarks on Bitcoin. Offensive remarks? Really? I mean, who's offended? The rats? Okay, let me move on. On Warren Buffett's recent offensive remarks on Bitcoin claimed that not everybody is right all the time. Fred Wilson, a legendary venture capitalist, also has issued an open response to counter Warren's recent remarks. Speaking at the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders meeting earlier this month, Warren Buffett remarked that Bitcoin is probably rat poison squared and that Bitcoin is creating nothing. To this, Fred Wilson, founder of Union Square Ventures, claimed Warren has not carried out his research on Bitcoin properly. And he said that at the Consensus 2018 conference. Um, let me read the exact quote, which I believe I have here. He said... When Warren Buffett, I think I got this from Bloomberg, when, Warren, when someone like Warren Buffett looks at this, he thinks that's no good. Where's the cash flow? It's in the token. It's not cash flow. He said, adding that investors should look at MV equals PQ, not DCF. Now, I got to explain those letters because that's going to make people do it double tick. But, yes, um, please do. So, okay, DCF is discounted cash flow. Um, that means that you are holding an asset. And that asset is expected to have income associated with it at some points in the future. And that money in the future is worth money to you now, but maybe a little less than it is in the future because of the interest rates that's discounted and that's discounted cash flow. And that in theory should be the uh, price of the stock. And that's what people or, or the asset. And that's what, you know, people often look at or, you know, that's what investors should look at. Um, MV right. equals PQ is an economic equation. Um, it's not like, it, it, it's actually a, um, a tautology, I believe, because it's not, it's, it's almost correct by definition. Um, but it means that, so M is the number of it's the amount of money available. So it's the number of dollars in the system. Uh, but in this case, it could be the number of Bitcoin in the system. V is the velocity of money. So how often does that change hands? So it's M times V equals P times Q. P is the price of goods and Q is the number of goods in the economy. So um, I guess the idea is that the price is positively correlated with the amount of uh, prices are positively correlated. And remember, this is the prices of goods. So the price of Bitcoin is going to be one over the price of goods. So actually, let's do this. The price of Bitcoin would be negatively correlated to the number of Bitcoin in the system. So more Bitcoin in the system means Bitcoin goes down, but we know Bitcoin is capped. Uh, velocity is bad for the price. The higher the velocity, the price goes down. But the quantity of goods, Q, the number of digital goods in the digital economy, I guess, would be positively correlated with the price of Bitcoin. So I guess what you, know, you said earlier is that we don't, I think you said this in another 
uh, podcast episode, let me get this right, is that we don't really know what type of asset it, this is. It's not a type of asset we've ever seen before. Um, it looks like Fred Wilson with that statement is trying to figure that out. I'm not saying he's got it, but that's sort of his, he, he, he's looking at that you know, economic, uh, macroeconomic equation of what sets prices. In that sense, Fred Wilson is saying that you're not getting, you know, it, it's not producing any, you know, cash flow, but the value will accrue to the token, which, you know, is an interesting idea. But of course, it's like, well, how does that value accrue to the token? And I guess if you're looking at that MV equals PQ, it just means the the, the number of the Q is the key one here, I think, is what he's saying, because the number of digital goods, the number of goods that are being bought and sold by Bitcoin, that is what drives the price. Um, but I think right now it's mostly just speculation. So it's just like yeah, I, people just want to be on it for the future where there's a lot of digital goods. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, so I, I cut Buffett some slack uh, for, for not liking Bitcoin and not wanting to invest in it. And that's, that's absolutely a valid yeah. uh, position to take. Uh, and, and, and I, I think his suspicion uh, that that there's a lot of speculation going on there uh, is is a big driver there that that I, I think he's seeing that there is greater value be, being given to it than than the 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 asset actually supports. But I don't yeah, think well, that my, equates to no value. I think that um, um, Warren Buffett is, if we could go back to the um, the the theme of the day, he is an an underfitter on this. Um, and if you look at his investment strategy, at least what he says, you know, he tries to invest in things that are, uh, you know, maybe not too complicated. And so that's the sign of an underfitter. And that's why I said, well, underfitting can be less dangerous than overfitting because he's very, very successful. Well, right. And and the innovation that he applied was was not taking big risks. It wasn't, you know, he, the 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 one major innovation in his investing investing approach was to take huge amounts of other people's money and basically use it on the margin but put it into uh you know relatively safe investments uh and 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 kind of keep rolling that snowball and that has worked very well for him so there's Aaron, there's very little incentive so for him to go out and do something that <laughs> completely breaks that pattern oh i of course. I, I, I i oversimplify uh but but it's you know, f- finding yeah. those those safe investments is not easy, uh, and then convincing other people to let you go play with their huge amounts of money is also not easy. Uh, which which is why I and billions of other people have have not managed to pull pull off what what I made sound very simple. Um, but but yeah, because that's worked for him, he has very little incentive to to break from a pattern that's that's showing no sign yeah. of of failing. And and perhaps somebody else will come along with a. A superior technique, but is it superior enough for him to risk what is right, working right. very, very well know, for him? He's missed investments in the past, but they were mostly tech investments that maybe weren't that safe. Which, yeah, which which brings me back to, to to what I was saying before that that it is entirely valid for him to say, yeah, I don't want to get involved in this at all. I'm I'm going to stay away with it. And and in fact, I would advise my colleagues to do the same. But that's different than than saying that there's something fundamentally broken and the you know the the technology and the concept and all of that is is not only not going to work, but that it's you know an, an evil. Maybe just saying it's rat poison for for me from from my you know, perhaps I'm, I'm treating it perhaps. that way. 
my my other question I though saw, would I saw be one meme that I liked, which is like I tried using this rat poison, and then you know they had like yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, one of those fake rats come up, like those puppet rats with like a giant coin and a chain on his neck with like sunglasses. <laughs> like that's that's what I got. Well, you got to be careful because rat poison isn't always uh, an unmitigated bad. Yeah. Um, I think Could it would be a good investment. Maybe, <laughs> maybe people uh, should take it as everyone invests in rat poison companies now. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's a medication. I think it's warfarin that, that is a, a blood thinner. Yeah. Um, and it is it is used for uh, certain, certain medical conditions. Um, however, it is also a super effective rat poison because it uh, – Rats are very small. It doesn't take very much, and it thins their blood to the point that they stop working. It is interesting. By the way, speaking of overfitting, I had right here a. Uh, I opened a fortune cookie, and uh, <laughs> it says, "I got my fortune out here." It says, "Golden investment opportunities are arising," so we should keep that in mind. Um, well, so one one more thing on on the on the Bitcoin. Yeah, oh, yeah I so, have more. I have more to talk about there. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So I I hesitate to refer to it as a currency. Um, just because it has coin in its name, but that's that's a, a, a one of the big labels that people are putting on it. How is investing in Bitcoin different than any other form of currency speculation that people are engaging with? And and I doubt that that Warren Buffett is big in the currency speculation yeah. market either. Uh, but but there are many people who make their entire careers investing in currency. Right, and those don't have cash flow assets those are not cash flow. right and and, well, and and some of them are backed by sovereign governments or or by assets right. but the US dollar hasn't been backed by the gold standard since what the 70s right, right. I mean what I, you know, I I don't know if we covered that in AP US history that may have, that may have been right after we I stopped think that was, but yeah I think that stuff you have to learn outside of uh, history classes um, yeah no I think that um, I mean the, the thing I like about the Bitcoin as an investment is you know now, out of the blue, all of a sudden, we see that you know Turkey is having problems with their currency, and I'm always like, what's the probability that one currency in the world is having problems? Well, there's almost always one, you know, and so, <laughs> and so it's sort of snowballing that you know every uh, every country that gets hit, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know the demand to hold assets. Oh, but when, when you start looking at the statistics on that type of thing and zoom out to a global level, it truly gets yeah. terrifying. I, I, I read an analysis uh, about a month ago that, that made a very convincing argument uh, that you have a, uh, was it a greater than 33% chance of seeing a, uh, a civil war level event happen in your country in your lifetime. Regardless of where you then live. a thirty three percent chance in your lifetime, then what? Like, is that always the, the, you have a thirty three percent chance that, that that you will live that, that during your lifetime there will be a civil war level event in what your about, country? What um, about? No, that makes sense. I mean, look at that makes that U.S. history is pretty much spot on. It's three life. Yeah, we've 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 had two in yeah. in you know what three hundred ish years. One. Or well, okay, that's so stuff. Well, there was there was the revolution and then the civil war. I I, okay. I would put those yeah, on on a similar. We, there was a complete overthrow right. of the government right. and a okay. restructure. But then, yeah, and and, and is the probability of hyperinflation or at least very severe inflation um, the same? I mean it. The, the Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, at least in in the near future, it's going to be game changing for situations where you have hyperinflation. I mean, I don't think hyperinflation is ever going to work, play out the same way it ever did uh, in the past, especially in a developed country. 
Yeah, it, it, the the question is, will well, so, yeah, I I am not an econo- an, an economist nor a uh, economic historian, so I couldn't tell you what the distribution of of hyperinflation between you know first world and and third world countries is. My impression is that it tends to happen a lot more uh, in in tin pot dictatorships, but that's probably uh, a little yeah. bit biased. Uh, I don't see any hyper. I don't but, see so, any so hyperinflation question, in Wakanda. I saw that. <laughs> I just saw. I saw Black Panther. I. I I think their reputation yeah. is hyperinflated, but I, I have not actually seen Black Panther, so I, I well, have no legs that, to stand you know, on there. Not the joke, but the but you know the, their country is hidden as a third world country, and so you have all these like you know at the ends you have you know the UN guy like what does your country have to offer all the other countries in the world? But really, they have this hyper, <laughs> you know, um, they have this uh, very strong technological society. It's kind of like Superman as a whole country, where you know Superman is um, you know is someone who kind of hides in plain sight as someone no one notices, but it's really Superman. So I think of a whole country like that. But yeah, 33% civil war. You know what? That makes sense. When people say in my lifetime, you know, a lifetime is a long time. People don't realize. Like when someone says X, Y, Z will never happen, this is another thing that I realize with predictions. What they mean is that five, 10 years, you know, sometimes it's really – well, the, the the way that analysis started off, and and I will try and find it so we can post it in the show notes. But uh, it was it was talking about things like flood insurance as as a as a concrete example. Yeah. And if you live in a in a place where there is a uh, you know a one percent chance of a hundred year flood uh, occurring in in every any given year and and hitting your your piece of property, and he went and, and cranked out the numbers on that and said, so you know over the lifetime of your thirty year mortgage, the likelihood of a hundred year flood uh, uh, impacting your property is and it was twenty something percent because it because of how the percentages work and, and he said and that is why the bank won't insure it and then he went and did the math and said you know that that based on previous trends uh that this is the likelihood that uh there will be a you know a civil war level event in your country in, in your lifetime and the probability is worse than uh, a condition for which the bank would not write your mortgage because they don't want to insure against it so uh the his his stipulation was we should all be considering uh whatever the equivalent of civil war, you know, dislocating event insurance is. Um, and, and then that, that whole thing got into why preppers aren't completely crazy. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Befriend the prepper because I'm certainly not one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, I, I don't live in the city, but my understanding is it is very difficult to be a prepper in a place like New York city. Yeah, it is. What was I going to say on that? There was something I was going to say on that. I, I feel like the uh, what were we were talking now. Now see, I'm the one with this problem. I'm the one who's got some memory loss. What were we talking about again? Oh, Bitcoin, um, hyperinflation. No, we were talking about the civil war thing, and you said, uh, and, and we're talking about civil war insurance and stuff happening over a lifetime. Oh yeah, I I think that the as crazy as American politics have been over the last few years. I still think that the United States, in terms of our, you know, our political parties and our basic realm of debate, has been surprisingly um, stable over the last forty or fifty years. In my reading of it, compared to 
um, and you know the Western countries in general compared to other periods of the same time. You know, talk about Revolutionary War, the Civil War. Look at the twenty years before that and twenty years after that. Things how the you know maybe the major changes of the last forty years have been all technology, not um, you know not in terms of our political debate, which means that sometime in our lifetime, there could be a huge shift that we're well, not really prepared we for. We say that, but I... We might be experiencing I, that I think right now. You're my perspective yeah. being in in our early mid-30s um, is well, is a little uh, uh, a little skewed on that because uh, if, if you talk about 40 years ago, uh, well, we, we weren't born then and and we weren't really aware of what was going on on the national or global political scene until i i would say with with pretty high confidence i wasn't paying much attention to that until i was at least in my teens uh and so i think there may have very well been some some sure. major shifts going on in in that that first segment that just don't register to us because they weren't part of our our awareness that yeah but i read i you know i i read a lot of articles from back then. Um, and, you know, you can read newspapers and, and history and it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's, I don't know how that could be measured. Um, but again, I feel like there'll be some time in our lifetime where, uh, you know, the situation is just going to be completely different because a lifetime is yeah. a long time again. I mean, hopefully <laughs> you know, in the next 40 years I'm talking about. Okay. So let's, uh, let's, let's go. The, the other thing I want to talk about here is underfitting and overfitting. And, you know, my example here is Warren's underfitting, but he's still a, you know, multi, multi, multi billionaire. Um, and who are the people who are overfitting in Bitcoin? Well, those are the people who are falling for every altcoin scam that comes along and every ICO. And, you know, some people who are taking a lot of risks with those things are getting rich and other people are getting ruined. And so, I mean, an example of, you know, an overfitting friend might be not someone who's just falls for every altcoin, but just falls for every, you know, they're just someone who's very suggestible when it comes to advertising or whoever comes along and tells them that they should do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw a recent, uh, I don't know if it was a meme or not, but someone posted, you know, if, if, uh, maybe it was even you know five years ago. I had invested in the following cryptocurrencies. If I put a thousand dollars into each of them, what would it be worth today? And you know, Bitcoin showed some 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 significant growth, but it was it was either the least or or second least growth among all of them. That that some of the and and that that's largely due to the fact that it was actually established as as a thing back then, as opposed to being you know, barely in existence, but some of them had, had orders of magnitude, uh, greater growth. And I'm not convinced that all of those other ones are, really yeah, I, I, I mean, they haven't fallen yet, but I'm not convinced that they have any meaningful staying power. Um, I think a lot of them are riding on the, on the coattails of cryptocurrency and blockchain. And because of that, they're seeing people jump into them. And then the question is, okay, now what? Um, which, which there's some of that already. Yeah, there's think, certainly uh, oh. some of that with all of the cryptocurrencies, but I feel like it's it's less with with you know Bitcoin and Ethereum and and some of the the mainstream ones that are actually kind of advancing their technology as opposed to the the Me Too currencies. Yeah. Right, but we're not we're not far enough along in this uh, in this industry yet to 
not leave open the possibility that another coin will come in and do extremely well and be a number two. Not, some people keep saying, you know, Bitcoin will be overtaken. I don't, maybe a little bit by Ethereum. I, I don't really see that It's happening, very possible. I mean, just, they, they could you know, be the MySpace of the social networking yeah. world, uh, of, you know, the, the, the social networking equivalent in, in the cryptocurrency world. But there's, there's nothing concrete yeah, to suggest that I at just, this point. Yeah, yeah. I, I see this working a little differently, but okay. Uh, let's go on. We have one more topic to discuss, and we're short on time here. Uh, so let's address a listener question about the Turing test, which we mentioned uh, two episodes ago. So the Turing test is now an ancient test for AI, well-known, named after Alan Turing, who um, is sort of the, the you could say, the, uh, the father of computer science, um, sort of the hero at Bill Actually Park. I don't know if you've seen the movie Imitation Game, but that's about how uh, you know they used machines to break the um, the uh, German Enigma code in World War II. We talked about that in episode five, I believe, or episode four. I should look that up. Um, now, the uh, the Turing test. Before I go on to the question, the way it works is you have two consoles set up and you're, you're chatting with both of them. So this is text only. And one of them is a human and one of them is a machine. And you don't know which is which. And so you have to ask questions to each one to try to figure out which one is the machine and which one is the computer. Again, it's different from a bot just kind of passing off as a human a little bit on through email or through Twitter when someone isn't suspecting. No, it's actually a smart person, you know, on their keyboard trying to figure out which is which. It's a 50-50 test and asking very specific questions to try to tease that out. So it's a very difficult test to pass. And that is uh, the Turing test. If you can fool the person into thinking that you are the, uh, the human uh, with any you know, regularity and any consistency. Um, and my sort of, um, my short answer from last week, which we're going to expand upon is that, yes, if you can pass that test, then you have strong AI. But I think that we're going to invent strong AI without passing that test first. Um, for a variety of reasons. Let's talk about it. Let's, let me read the questions. Something you get, let, let me read the question from a listener. Something you guys mentioned that I wish you would go into more depth. How useful is a Turing-type test on an AI system? Uh, inevitably, the incentive to an AI designer or even the optimization function of AI itself would become to figure out how to look more like a human, specifically how to start lying be that response delays, purposefully wrong answers, or other human fallibilities. By the way, the verbal ticks are already there in the Google AI presentation. Now the Pandora box is open, a system that has as one of its goals to become a really, really good deceiver, all because we used an outdated measuring stick. Hope to hear your thoughts. Um, now, I also mentioned an article that came out on exactly this topic uh, the other day that could start to answer this. So I, I like this article. It was an article uh, posted by the CEO of msg.ai, which is a conversational 
marketing company. So it's somebody who's working with conversational bots. And I'm going to read part of it, and then we can talk about kind of our own thoughts about that. How does that sound? I, I will throw out one caveat, and uh, this is this is coming from the Wikipedia article on the Turing test. So if it's wrong, I blame Wikipedia. Uh, okay. But they do make the comment that the test does not check the ability to give correct answers to questions, only how closely answers resemble those a human would give. Um, well, that's that's considered correct is whether it's close to what a human would give. So that's that's correct in that system, R- right? Not factually yeah, I, accurate. Yeah. So so. The the ability to to uh, there's there there was there was some additional speculation about uh, speed of response uh, and and the complexity of the questions you can ask um, to to try and identify things that perhaps only a computer could do yeah. uh, and there's there's nothing preventing the human from throwing out wrong answers quickly or from the computer from throwing out wrong answers uh, quickly as well right 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 and i guess the the short answer is that in the real world no we want to invest in machines that are going to give us the right answer not the answer that 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 any old human can give us if we wanted an answer that a human could give us we just tap the shoulder of the person who's right next to us we ask them but you know if we're investing (laughs) billions and billions of dollars into an ai uh why not have it do something a little bit uh different let's get to the let's get to the truth for a change so in this article i want to read just parts of it Uh, For years, AI enthusiasts have used the Turing test as a guide for developing conversational bots. Developed in 1950, the Turing test focuses on believability, analyzing a machine's ability to behave indistinguishably from a human. Researchers have long considered passing the test as the holy grail of AI. This benchmark, though, was created in an era when AI wasn't common and teams created machines with the goal of creating a human clone. Later on, Today, we're somewhere between the Turing test and Hollywood's in-your-face robots. AI is surpassing human capacity in subtle but powerful ways, like in diagnosing diseases. Meaning in the application of modern AI, the number one goal is to solve problems. Reproducing human characteristics is the only one ingredient in a complex concoction of an effective AI, and many human characteristics are even counterproductive. Yet we still see engineers building things like time delays and conversational AI responses to make it as peer, to make it appear as though the bot is, quote, thinking, and similar tactics to contort technology into passing the Turing test. And then he gets into new success metrics for AI. I'm not going to read it, but the general bullet points were things like how it learns over time, how it applies to context, how well it holds memory, how comprehensive and connected, how it predicts needs, and how flexible it is. Um, And finally, only when AIs exhibit the ability to solve problems more quickly and intelligently than humans can we start flying over oceans, sidestepping the blueprint of the mechanical pigeon. The idea there is that an airplane is not a mechanical pigeon. Um, If we wanted to build a mechanical bird, then, well, actually people did try to do that. It was called, I think, in ornithopter is that is that the right term for it i'm not sure what it is but it's way better to build a plane. i know ornithopters are a thing yeah, yeah but it's 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 way better to build a plane from an engineering perspective for what we were trying to solve for what plane builders are trying to solve i know nothing about building planes but. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know some but it's not something i do anymore yeah oh yeah i used to do that but i i i you can confirm that i'm correct at least Yes, modern flame, 
Modern flames. Modern planes do not uh, em- employ a, a wing, wing flapping methodology, which, which in fact, by definition, is what an ornithopter does. It's a machine designed to achieve okay. flight by means of flapping wings. And why not? Because that's crazy, or for some other reason? Uh, we we can't pull off what birds can. It doesn't scale. Um, I, I think in the the simplistic explanation would be that much in the same way that that uh, giant ants don't work uh, for structural reasons. Um, that that flapping wings don't work at transporting human uh, scales. Right, right. And so the same could apply for AI. I think this, the the um, the analogy holds that in the large systems that we're trying to build, you know, answering like a human might not be the thing that we want to build. And so I think I, I could imagine a world where thirty years in the future we have machine super intelligence, but the idea of being able to pass the Turing test is kind of relegated to research labs and people who just have like a, you know, inherent interest in the topic. Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was one of my, my key questions. I guess there, there are two pieces to that. One is, uh, is there a cash prize for beating the Turing test, which, uh, it it, it looks like there's, there's a a Loebner prize, uh, and I haven't done the reading on it, but, but I don't think it's, it's something sufficiently large uh, that that that's going to drive all research in that area, um, but but I think like you said yeah. that that the Turing test is still very much relevant in academia. Uh, but I, I I the the way I worded it was was you know our, our mar- market force is not already driving us away from that to a to a more meaningful benchmark, and and I think they are because um, you know in 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 self driving vehicles and 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 all sorts of other areas you're not trying to. Well, with with a few exceptions, you're not trying to build, you know, a, a robotic human with a robotic brain to fill the role of a human. You're trying to solve the same problem, but in a way that can be done more effectively with artificial intelligence. Right. You're going to get a lot more for your investment if you do something like, uh, you know, figure out the likelihood that a car is going to hit a pedestrian or figure out the likelihood that uh, someone has a has a disease from their, uh, you know, from their test results or figure out the future value of, of a stock or, you know, um, in this case, you know, the author here, and I don't know much about his product of msg.ai, but this is, you know, AI based marketing. And so that is something that is related to human activity. I mean, all of it is, and it's all the complexity of human activity, but being exactly like the human is not the, the, the 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 investable part in that. Uh, compare all that to winning the Loebner Prize, maybe get a few thousand bucks. Or I should probably correct that and find out what <laughs> so that is. I, it's, I, I, it's I just lot. said that I, I don't think anybody uh, in in the you know the kind of the self driving car world. Even if it was a even if it was a million bucks, right, it wouldn't be mu- uh, you know as much, much like the uh, the was it the Lunar X Prize or some of the Mars prizes. None of them are going to re- to the value of those prizes. In, in no case is sufficient to pay for the effort that would go into actually winning the prize. It's, it's going to cost yeah. you a lot more to get to the moon than you would w- win for the Lunar X prize and, and likewise for Mars. Um, so, so oh, I, yeah. I, I said before that no one's trying to build like, you know, a, 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 a robot, uh, you know, like, like Terminator style to, to drive your, your quote unquote self-driving cars. Um, however, there is one counter example to that. And that's, uh, uh, that I, I'd seen before, and I just pulled it up. The the Aurora robot, robotic co-pilot, 
um, which the the reason they're doing it is because it retrofits into existing systems without having to do a complete overhaul. But they essentially have a robotic arm that goes in the co-pilot seat of an aircraft. Uh, and so it can it can grab the yoke and manipulate all of the controls. And so it, it's literally like having a robot sitting in the seat there that can fly the plane. Um, that being said, it, it could be the same thing could be accomplished much more efficiently by putting all of that inside the fly-by-wire system so that there's you know no mechanical linkage sitting in the co-pilot seat. Uh, but but you can't do that to a legacy aircraft, whereas you can drop this kind of a system into a into a you know legacy hardware and have it drive that. So I, I think in that that gets to um, something we talked about. I guess it was two episodes ago with the the Google AI demo um, with the possibility of two AIs uh, talking to each other using uh, you know human speech, um, which which at one level seems super inefficient. But if there is not a you know an existing standard API for those two AIs to communicate directly to each other, human speech can serve as a proxy for that, uh, and and it doesn't require them to go out and and develop a new interface for that particular use case. Right, right. So that's interesting. So that's but that's human speech. That's not being able to fool someone into thinking they're a human. You could still learn how to do natural language understanding and sentence construction, perhaps, and being having general intelligence without being able to fool a human into thinking that you're a human. Yeah, and, and, and maybe some of that comes down to uh, how comfortable we are, uh, like, like we were talking about in that episode, interacting with something that we know isn't human. Right, right. I feel it. So there's, what's that called? The uncanny valley when something is too close, but not quite right. Yeah, we, we don't you. talk about that too much um, in, in auditory. It's, it's mostly in the visual, but, but it certainly applies. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. close so enough that you know what they're trying to do, but it's not quite there. And that makes it worse than, than, you know, if it was the Stephen Hawking's voice. It would almost be better. If, well, it would almost be better if we got used to a normal voice, but there were some indications that it was a robot and that, you know, we would just get used to hearing that type of voice with, I don't know. Uh, I feel like there's a way to, I feel like it does not have to be, have to be a robotic sounding voice. Like I feel like you could have, uh, you know, a, a more pleasing voice for people, but not be totally, um, you know, not be totally uh, ignoring the 500 pound elephant in the room. I, I think that, it's an 800 pound, pound gorilla. Elephant or 500 pound gorilla. <laughs> okay, whatever. But not the anno- avoiding the elephant in the room, which is that, hey, you're not actually a human being. Um, whereas like that's sort of out in the open. Well, and and if Somehow. we're talking about true AI, then there's the whole question of, well, you know, would, would an AI take offense at that? Do, do they feel that they are they are a sentient being and, and you are shortchanging them. And, and that's a whole discussion that I am not at all prepared to get into. Um. Well, why again, again, follow the, uh, follow the investment would, if I'm going to, if you are going to, let's say you're Google or Facebook or Amazon, and you were to invest a billion dollars into a new AI initiative. Would you put it towards uh, a, module that gets offended when someone thinks of it as an AI or would you say, let's, let's not build well, that I, into the I system the, or are you saying that would just arise the, naturally? The, uh, maybe it will. No, wait, wait, wait. I have an idea. Maybe it'll just, 
it'll they would have something that says, "Hey, observe humans." And oh, start worst idea ever! Humans. And then they're like, oh. <laughs> "Yeah, I know." And I'll be like, "Well, humans get offended when people point out what they, you know, things like this." So, uh, so we should well, too. I, I think the and, uh, the that, big that unknown that uh, at least explains away a lot of this in 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 a sci-fi context uh, is is that usually when you have one of these, you know, whether it's Skynet level AIs or something like that, they've gotten to a point. Where before, perhaps before they become sentient, or or after, uh, they have the ability to self-modify and uh, you know add additional components to themselves, and and so while uh, you know Google may have no interest in putting in that kind of a, uh, a ability to be offended, uh, who's to say that that once the uh, the the momentum picks up and the uh, the AI is is building more of itself. Than, than we are, than, than we're directly influencing, that it wouldn't choose to go in some unexpected direction like that. Yeah, well, it, it might, but I think it would have to be because it was chasing after certain goals that were originally defined by people, um, but could then maybe morph yeah. into something else. Um, uh, yeah, I'd have to think of a specific example of how that would happen. So, so sure. granted that... Uh, AI and machine learning, while are while very closely knit, are not exactly the same thing. So I, I'm not I'm not expecting you to be Clearly. an AI expert, uh, but I, I have kind of a, a basic AI question, yeah. and and that's in in my mind, okay. I, I see the world of, of AI kind of broken up into two different problems, and and there's there's one where building a human like AI makes sense, and one where it doesn't, and there there may be problems that are potentially the the human approach is is the the best or only way to tackle a particular problem type, but uh, with with an AI, it's it's possible. Can you give me an example of like what would be the human a human one and what would be? Uh, I, I don't one? have a good example, <laughs> but because well, the the, the okay. thing I'm thinking of here is is that for for an AI, you can. You can plow more well, resources say, into yeah, it. I can give you more memory. I can give you more processing yeah. power. With with a human, you can have a genius human being, but at the end of the day, there's a limit to what that one human being can do. And if you want to increase their resources, you can give them other humans to work with, but that doesn't scale. Probably the, with the AI, it doesn't scale linearly either. But but Are you talking about being, being human or interacting with humans? Because if you're talking about, you know, let's say uh, we're talking about bots that do customer service, right? You don't have to act exactly like a human. You have to seem kind of human, but your objective function is really to have positive interactions with real humans. So I, I'm thinking maybe in, in terms um, of solving a, a more, a, 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 I don't want to belittle that, that challenge, but a, a much bigger problem where it's a, it's a question of, you know, one, a, a human being doesn't have the, the, the ability to the the mental capacity to to push through that you know some some sort of roadblock in 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 solving a problem, but but there's nothing wrong with the human approach. It's just that we we lack the computing power, and so if we had an AI that worked just like a human, we could continue to dump more computing power into them, and then they could break through that that roadblock. You know what I could use an AI to do. Um, Go through, listen to my podcast, and then write a <laughs> newsletter based on it. Well, I'm I'm sure the that there's notes. an AI that could write a transcript. Uh, 
I don't know how good it would be, but. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably, uh, there's, there's narrow AIs for that. I think writing a newsletter based on it would actually be pretty hard. I think you would have to, to write a good one. It would have to be general AI. You can summer, you could have it transcripted and then summarize. Pick out all the buzzwords. It'll look all messed up. Yeah, it'll look all messed up. All right. Do you have anything left after that? By the way, this is a very interesting discussion. I think a lot of our listeners will be will want to chime in. If you do want to chime in, that's localmaxradio at gmail.com. Um, also follow me on Twitter at Max Sklar. Anything else you got to add on that, Aaron? Uh, you know, there's there's a lot more we could talk about there. So I think I'll, I'll save some of my narrow versus broad AI questions for, for down the road when we inevitably come back to this topic. All right, great. I'm going to close out then. Next week, there's actually a chance that I might have, and I don't want to say who it is because, you know, I don't know, but uh, I might have a comedian with a very funny podcast on my show, and I'm going to ask him about, you know, podcasting and how he got into it and all sorts of stuff like that. And we'll see. Um, I don't know. We might have some some good discussions there. I have no idea what's going to happen. So we'll uh, we'll find out. I, I have uh, some... Other interesting guests lined up. Um, this one I think I could say is you know Esther Crawford from um, from Molly.com. I've been using Molly, which is the idea of creating a, a personal bot that someone asks you questions and then you answer the questions, but the bot also can answer a question for you. Um, so I'll, I've been starting to use that. It, it's in terms of like answering questions, I'm training it. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and as always... Looking for stories to cover and guests to invite on and things. That, like that. sounds good to me. I'm I'm looking forward to that episode in particular uh, with the personal bots. I got questions, but uh, I'll I'll talk to you about them later. Send them to me, and I'll I'll ask her if I can get her on. Awesome. All right, I'll call it a show. See you next week. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxClock. Have a great week. Feel the power. She said, I don't care what you say. You're going to